0: Get this party started! Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Busman, and it's great to have you with me in downtown Los Angeles, with the man who made this all possible, Tim Ferriss. We recorded this at Summit LA. I went on stage to interview Kobe Bryant, and Tim interviewed the producer Brian Grazer. So it was the ideal time to stop in at Tim's hotel room to find out something I've long been curious about. What makes Tim, Tim? I've always wondered how he got to write 4-Hour Workweek and his newest book, which just came out, Tribe of Mentors. So let's get started. But first... Let me introduce you to my partners on this podcast, Squarespace and ZipRecruiter. I don't know about you, but I'm always coming up with new ideas for my business. Let's get this on the website. Drives Kevin the manager nuts. But now that we're switching to Squarespace, Kevin can breathe a lot easier. Squarespace makes it simple to customize your website in the most beautiful way. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. Use the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And you'll see why I'm so happy and Kevin the manager is breathing easier. When I do hiring workshops companies are always looking for better tools. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 top job boards with just one click. Then, their smart technology notifies the most qualified candidates to apply. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And right now, Anyone who hears this can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ziprecruiter.com/busman f u s s m a n ziprecruiter. It's really the smartest way to hire. <laughs> We just went off the springboard, brother. We just went off the springboard. So I've been thinking about this conversation for a long time. And I basically had two ways to prepare, I thought. One, I know you. Uh, We've been in the sauna together. (laughs) We have. Met your mom. That's right. Met your dad. We've gone out to eat. You won't let me pick up the check, (laughs) (laughs) listen to your podcasts, read your books. So I do in some ways know you and I thought, well, I could do even more research or I could try to just wipe my memory clean and approach this in a way that, well, I really don't know Tim. And I'm going to try and forget a little about what I know and just act like I bumped into Tim Ferriss on the train. Holy shit. It's (laughs) Tim Ferriss. How you doing?
1: You're pretty good at trains
0: (laughs) from from my my memory. (laughs) Uh, There you go. I'm good at trains. So, and it's funny when I went out to see you, I went on a train and so I thought that would be an interesting way to go. And the more I think about it, the thing that really hits me about you goes to a story about Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, okay? So one's a producer and the other's a filmmaker. They're partners. And I'm interviewing them in the Claridge Hotel in London. And we're talking, we're having a great conversation. And in the middle of this interview a fire alarm goes off and water sprouts from the ceiling. (laughs) In an instant, Ron Howard rushes to, it was like sort of a kitchen in this room and he grabs a bucket and he puts it under the water. At the same time, Ron Howard ran to the bathroom and got the towels and had them down. And I was just amazed at how they both in a second went in their own directions to solve the problem. And together they came up with the solution while I just sat there (laughs) watching this. And the more I thought about it, I thought the genius of Tim Ferriss is he does both at the same time. You're like two people. Who would You wouldn't ordinarily need a partner to do the things that you do, and yet you have these skills on different sides of the spectrum that reside inside you. And I'm thinking, how did that happen? So let's start at the beginning. I was talking yesterday to this uh, guy, Wim Hof.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. There know, you go. I know Wim.
0: Okay. Now, he goes underwater, and just stays under the cold for minutes at a time. And when I was asking him how this came about, he explained when he was born, he was born a twin, the second twin, and he came out basically deprived of oxygen. And he didn't know it until years later, but his whole life became a movement toward the moment he was born with. And I'm wondering, at your birth, did something happen that helped make you who you are?
1: It's quite possible. Uh, I don't remember all too much, but as I've been told, I was born premature and ended up in critical care. I still have scars. Uh, You can actually see one right on my wrist there. It looks like a cigarette burn.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I have another one underneath my uh, left nipple, basically. It's in the rib area. And that is from a respirator. I had, as I understand it, five full-body blood transfusions to oxygenate the blood properly. And I was in really bad shape, very, very, very tiny. And under incubator lights and so on. So I had a lot of, I suppose, trauma, but difficulty coming into the world, and seemed to have recovered. <laughs> but More I was than very, uh, brother. But, but I was very, very, very small up until about uh, the end of fifth grade. Very small kid, very so, much a run.
0: So has, I mean, your life has been a good part of it spent in search of getting the most out of your body and definitely there's a pretty good relation
1: well there is in in some direct ways uh, in the sense that the experimentation and the recording of experiments started with primarily wrestling which was the only sport I really gravitated to towards or actually did well in I was very hyperactive as a kid and there were some other mothers who recommended to my mom to drain my batteries to put me into something called kid wrestling. <laughs> I couldn't do or I really didn't want to do other sports that were team sports because I was so small I would get I was bullied and beat up and couldn't compete I couldn't hold my own with other kids, but weight uh, weight classes exist in wrestling, so the puny little runt could battle the other puny little runt and then one of them could feel. Uh, like a winner for a short period of time before they went back to school and got the the crap kicked out of them once again. (laughs) So I was put into kid wrestling, and there was really, there's not much technical mastery (laughs) when you're a little kid in kid wrestling. It's mostly just flopping around. But at some point in high school, uh, certainly, and just before high school, began taking it very seriously, and I still to this day have some very serious uh, thermoregulatory issues. So I I don't respond to heat in a normal way. How do you respond to heat? Uh, I appear to have, and I've actually done uh, a number of experiments and been involved in experiments to try to better understand it. Uh, I'm very sensitive to say heat stroke, but it doesn't appear, because I, at one point, much, much later, after college, volunteered to be a test subject I'm going to bounce around a little bit here, at Stanford University, where they were developing a glove for cooling the body. And it was being developed, or at least funded, by the military. So the general experiment included wearing full military fatigues, helmet, loaded backpack, and you had an esophageal probe, as you would imagine, down your nose. So it's about I would say two feet long. And it's a it's a plastic tube that you feed down your nose, down your esophagus. So your throat can't close or your epiglottis can't close down to get your core body temperature from your heart. <laughs> so you get as close to the heart as possible. Now, unfortunately for me, the military standard temperature gauge is a esophageal probe, but up the other end. So I also had oh, no. a two foot oh, esophageal man. probe up the other end oh, oh, man. and then you'd go, oh, it gets better. And I then knew he, we were going to get deep uh, here, but. Uh, oh, I'm just jumping right into it. There's not much foreplay in this podcast. <laughs> and I then had to go into a sauna. I don't recall the exact temperature and march on an inclined treadmill in the sauna to heat exhaustion. And this was done multiple times and they would track everything. And what was, well, I should say in retrospect, should have been expected, it was miserable, of course. And then I was completely non-functional for the rest of the day because my brain had effectively shut off when you marched to heat exhaustion. But I hit that heat exhaustion shutdown point at lower temperatures than other people. So I think it's something in the brain, maybe there's some gauge in the hypothalamus or something that is off. Uh, But suffice to say, uh, throughout even high school, uh, and we can come back to this, but when I was in Japan, which was a real formative moment, uh, was hospitalized for effectively heat stroke uh, during a judo competition or training in the summer because I was overheating. So uh, all of that is backstory to say that really early on I realized that heat was not my friend And endurance was not my strong suit. I just couldn't last. I would overheat in these wrestling matches. So I had to develop techniques and approaches Wow! and other tricks like getting very good at cutting weight so that I could level the playing field to actually compete and win in these sports. So if you could figure out how to really be 15 pounds heavier than you were... It would give me a fair shot, right? Yeah, and it—it it certainly is an advantage, but I had other disadvantages. Uh, so it—it uh, it would, but it was—it was an area where I realized most people were not spending a lot of time analyzing anything, or that's a very fancy way to put it. Uh, it was—it was just a low-hanging fruit for me. Because I was like, all right, well, I'm never going to be the most technical wrestler. I'm never going to be the most uh, persistent wrestler in terms of endurance because I, I lack the physiology for it. But how many wrestlers are really going to sit down and try to figure out sodium and potassium <laughs>
0: oh, and
1: read about potassium-sparing diuretics and f- figure out that dandelion root is something that you know, a 15-year-old can actually get a hold of over-the-counter, which act, which has the properties of certain prescription Medications, which should achieve the same thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, where did that come from? Uh, I, I, I've always, at least from high school uh, been fascinated by nutrition. And that does not come from my family. Uh, you know, it's,
0: it's funny because one of the things when I think of your dad, I always think of uh, the advertising slogan he came up with, (laughs) fill your belly at big Dave's deli. (laughs) That's right. That's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I won't want to get into the particulars of, of my family too much just for privacy purposes. But yeah, I mean, my, uh, uh, I would not say that my parents are uh, uh, nutritional advisors to Olympians. <laughs>
0: <laughs> one, <laughs> they're other, taking, one other fact they're about ta- your family. They're taking,
1: a- they're taking better care of themselves, but it didn't come from there. I honestly don't know exactly where it came from. It could have been, I'll just speculate here. I've never actually thought about it, which is a good sign in an interview, that uh, I was a puny little runt. And uh, I was I was born... Uh, in, in the late 70s and then grew up in the 80s. Well, who were the stars in the 80s? You have Schwarzenegger, Van Damme, Whoa, Stallone. Oh, man. There are all these ripped. That was the golden era of
0: action films, if you think about it. You know what? I was out of the country then. I missed it all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this and this makes sense well the st- the plots are pretty easy to follow so if you wanted to go back <sighs> i said wow. i killed you last i lied <laughs> it's very easy to digest material
0: now i understand the opening of your podcast
1: <laughs> yeah exactly yeah makes more sense
0: oh man so there's one other fact that i just like to bring out because to me it's, it's very interesting there's there was like a salesmanship inside your dad and your mom, you you come into the house and, Hey, sit down, let's peel some shrimp and uh, have some dinner. Yeah. There is a very welcoming quality to her. For sure. Uh,
1: And both of these you, you have. Yeah. They're very different. They're very different people. Uh, And as long as, yeah, as long, as long as we're talking about characteristics, I'm fine with it. The, uh, I'll give another anecdote, which shows the difference. So, my my dad loves crossword puzzles. My mom is just uh, incredibly good at <laughs> also crossword puzzles, but Wheel of Fortune. So their minds work very differently. I mean, she can see one letter and she'll get it in ten milliseconds. And I don't. My father also has, and you've experienced this. Uh, the closest thing to the closest thing to perfect factual recall that I've ever encountered up close for extended periods of time. I mean he remembers the where every classmate of his sat in every class he had in elementary school. He remembers every word of fill- in the blank language that he learned in fifth grade. And I do not have that. I also don't have uh, the, say, within 10 milliseconds, answer, Wheel of Fortune answer ability of my mom, but it stands to reason that if I'm getting genetics from both sides, I'm somewhere in the middle.
0: But but what you do have is the ability to make people feel comfortable around you, uh, which if you're interviewing people, (laughs) you got to have that. Seems to help. (laughs) And, And also, you understand how to sell what you do Mm -hmm. so like pieces are starting to come together here
1: can may i add another piece sure oh please do so i don't know i don't think i've ever told you this so all right so how did i become interested in persuasion and selling and so on i've always been a night owl my mom's theory is so i've always i mean since i was a very 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 little kid gone to bed typically 2 3 4 a.m. my mom's theory is because that's uh that, that is due to being under incubator lights at night in the in, the intensive care unit or the critical care unit in the hospital as a newborn I was constantly under under lights at night and what kind of television is on at two or three in the morning. Infomercials. Ron Popeil. (laughs) Infomercials. (laughs) So I'd be up late at night and it's all paid programming. I couldn't go to sleep and there would be these, it's Ron Popeil, it's fill in the blank, it's Tony Robbins. And I just became fascinated by and asked myself why someone would buy one of these things. And at the time, of course, I'm not interested in making money, I'm not interested in building a business. I'm a little kid, but nonetheless, you oh, got the a po- big piece. You got, there. you got the pocket fisherman. You've got the topic hair powder <laughs> that you pour <laughs> on your head. <laughs> and was, and uh, you're remembering this like your dad would have. Yeah, I mean I do have I, I have a very visual memory. So my 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 dad has not just visual, but also very uh, textual if that makes sense. And I know that's coming through the optic system, uh, but I tend to remember anything that engages color and motion very well. Uh, which can creep people out because they'll be like oh yeah they'll be hey we've met before yeah i remember meeting cuz we were sitting here and there and you were third chair from the left and you were wearing this and that <laughs> it's a woman especially <laughs> the <laughs> the spider sense for psycho goes off in their head which is is uh, not well founded in this case it's just the memory that i particular type of memory that i have but dang, yeah lots of late nights listening to now, this Peel guy, I, I I don't remember his work. What could, uh, so Ron Popiel, I, I became later interested in going back and figuring out who these people were, right? So you had, for instance, the Thigh Master. You probably remember the Thigh oh, Master. I do remember
0: the Thigh Master and yeah.
1: the whole story behind that. And then Ron Popeel who who cut his teeth at state fairs. A lot of these old old timers, the kind of uh, groundbreakers in infomercials cut their teeth at these various state fairs uh, selling to live disinterested audiences who are walking by. So they'd have to get attention and first get a crowd and then sell the product, right? So there was a multi-stage process and they had then translated that to television, which is why almost all of these products initially were live demo products, right? Which Tony Robbins differed from. Uh, And uh, so that interested me. I'm like, all right, well, everyone else is doing the slice and dice. I can cut through a can, and then I can cut through a tomato because it didn't dull the knife. And as a kid, of course, I don't, have no desire to buy a knife, but I'm looking at the demo. And then you have, say, a Tony Robbins or maybe a handful of others, but really not many who weren't selling a physical product. And uh, that was interesting to me. Or like the no money down real estate stuff. (laughs) (laughs) which made even less sense to me than anything else. I'm like, well, all right, I don't even know where to begin understanding that conceptually, but they're using this guy who's selling whatever no money down real estate is, is using a thousand testimonials. Okay, so he's only using testimonials. That's interesting. Why is he doing that? Oh man, see this, this is what fascinates me because
0: for what you just said about first get the crowd, then sell the product is very different from the way a a writer or an artist thinks where they're saying, I want to do, I got to do this. Somebody's got to help me do it. Somebody give me some money and and allow me to fulfill my dream. Mm -hmm. And they don't stop to think, well, let me get a crowd first and
1: then I can do what I want to do. So let me add another layer to this, which is, so that's my life from midnight to three o'clock in the morning. The rest of the time, I, from a very, very young age, wanted to be a comic book penciler. So I wanted to be an artist. I literally wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be an illustrator.
0: Oh, I'm, you are
1: two people. And I spent all of my time drawing. And uh, that was my goal, was to become a comic book penciler, Uh, and I was idolized certain artists at the time, specifically pencilers, like Jim Lee, who uh, I've uh, been actually, at some point about a year ago, we were trading email to hopefully have me interview him, which would be a lot of fun. And McFarlane and Eric Larson and I could go down the list, Simon Bisley, all of these artists were, those were the people I idolized from a career standpoint. I didn't even think about it as a career, but as, as to what I wanted to do since I enjoyed drawing and seemed to have a predisposition uh, towards it, uh, that was what I spent the rest of my time thinking about. So you had school, wrestling, Comic book penciling, and then I can't sleep. What should I do? <laughs> Infomercials. Infomercials.
0: Now I'm beginning to get, the pieces are coming together here, brother. <laughs> because, like, I look at myself and, like, I am missing. I am missing pieces here. I wasn't up at three in the morning watching the infomercials. No, there are downsides to that. I mean, there are. It's not all upside. No, no. But think about think about what that gave you. Yeah. Just the the notion of get the crowd first, then sell the product. Yeah. That puts you in control. Yeah, totally. Which most artists. Are, they're they're out of control they're always yeah. looking for the manager or the publishing house or yeah. the record company to support their dream
1: yeah and from the beginning i wanted to be uh control was really important to me from the, i mean very beginning and not talking about career aspirations but just trying to control as many variables as possible people think of me as uh some type of risk taker with the early stage startups and everything else. I don't view myself that way at all. I think about mitigating and decreasing risk all the time. So for me, I like to have control directly or indirectly over as many variables as possible. That's not always a strength. uh, But at least for me, uh, up to up to this point, it's there have been a lot of benefits, certainly. How does money fit into the equation? When you were in high school, how did you see money? Once you start working, so I think my first job was 13 or 14, and I was the floor and machine cleaner at an ice cream shop called Snowflake, which no longer exists, uh, out on Long Island where I grew up. And... Uh, for people who don't know I grew up as as a townie in the Hamptons which is a weird place to grow up so to grow up as sort of the rat tail wearing townie in a resort town anywhere in the world is pretty odd and so that at that time I was getting paid who knows whatever it was, it was like 7 dollars an hour 8 dollars an hour and actually no I don't I don't know if it was per hour I think it was per shift because that's what got me in trouble is i got fired from this first job because they i think it was per shift that i was getting paid because otherwise i wouldn't have been incentivized to do what i'm about to tell you if they're paying me per hour i wouldn't have wanted i, I wouldn't have had any interest in doing things faster <laughs>
0: oh here we go <laughs> yeah
1: so i i was being told to do things in a stupid way it was stupid like i'm not gonna mince words. It was just, I was being told to do things in a very inefficient way so that I would be kept busy for the entire period of time. This was not of great interest to me and seemed stupid. So I, for myself at least, devised what I thought was a much better way, (laughs) a much faster way of cleaning cleaning the machines and the floors and so on. And then I would always bring to work, God, I haven't thought about this in a while, a copy of Black Belt magazine which was the only martial arts the 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 most widely read martial arts magazine at the time. This is before any mixed martial arts or anything had entered the scene. And uh then I would take my mop uh like the mop handle and just like practice made up <laughs> martial arts stuff. I didn't know what I was doing. Like in the back parking lot where no one would see me. So I do my work and I say all right, my work is done. And then <laughs> I try to be Bruce Lee. Yeah, and then it's like all right, well now Given that you know the the next whatever it is, Van Damme movie is coming out next week, or I just seen the latest Stallone movie, and I still weigh you know hundred hundred pounds. I need to work on becoming Bruce Lee. Uh, needless to say, the boss was not super fond of this, and so he would tell me to do things like, "All right, well, I want you to clean it again." and, oh, and I'd say, "Well, man, I, the, it's the, whole,
0: the it, four hour work. It's work already is it's already clean.
1: Oh, you man. know, the floor is already clean. Give it mine." <laughs> And uh we, that was that was a partnership destined to fail, I'm afraid. <laughs> so I was I was relieved of duty. <laughs> wow, a few, but two weeks or months in.
0: The notion of efficiency is yes. planted at so that, that, that point. So that was the
1: efficiency and that was not uh client facing. What I mean by that is I didn't have any interaction with the customers there, right? After that, my next job and and I worked many, many jobs as a busboy and occasionally was given the gift of, say, waiting for a table. Uh, But I worked in restaurants, and I worked for people who have seen The Affair, which I think is a Showtime show. There is a restaurant in that show called The Lobster Roll. Well, I was a busboy at The Lobster Roll, which is one of the highest volume, highest table turnover, which is a good thing in in that world. Restaurants on Long Island, uh, certainly out on the on the East End. Uh, not, I'm uh, no offense, lobster roll. Some people from the city call it lunch because it has a big sign outside. Just FYI, anybody from Manhattan, nobody calls it lunch out there. It's the lobster roll, and it uh, that was brutal. That was that was brutal. I also worked just to paint the spectrum, super low, uh, not low end, but fast fast food, right? Fast, high volume. And then I worked at restaurants like the Maidstone Arms, which now has a new name, and many, many others in between. So I had a chance uh, in those circumstances to say at the Maidstone Arms, I remember I had to wear a a pink, was it a pink button-up shirt with a black bow tie. Needless to say, I didn't have either of those. So I had to work to afford... To get dressed, to get dressed, to go to 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 work, work. and uh, but that gave me the ability to interact with diners, right? So now I can contribute to getting more tips for the table, which ultimately gets divvied up among the people who are front of house and maybe even back of house. Uh, so the cleaning wasn't a great fit for me, I don't think on 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 many on several different levels.
0: But it actually taught you about efficiency the way you feel about efficiency. Or
1: taught me how much I hate inefficiency. Okay. Or maybe reinforced how much I hated inefficiency. And uh, because I'd already been thinking about efficiency within the context of wrestling. I just hadn't realized that that also all applied in other places. Wow. Right? Yeah, the pieces are coming together. Because if if I'm inefficient on the wrestling mat, what happens? Now I'm into the second period, third period then my body shuts down, then I lose. So I had to think about efficiency. Oh, yeah, I never would have used that. I never man. would have used that word, but that's it sort certainly... all comes
0: back to your birth.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose, you, I suppose, you be the, suppose the, it does.
0: The most efficient <laughs> to get the most out of yourself. You yeah. couldn't afford to just go along like
1: everybody else. Uh, no, I would lose. And I don't know where the dislike of losing came from, but I I certainly have a strong dislike of love losing. So uh, that just doing it following standard operating procedure just wasn't a very attractive option to me.
0: Okay, so here's one thing I do know. You went to study with John McPhee. I,
1: I had the gift, and I'm not going to say that... I in any way deserved it more than other kids at at Princeton, but I ended up going to Princeton for undergrad. And well, take uh, take
0: a second to describe who John McPhee is to those who yeah, John
1: McPhee. This may sound like a huge overstatement, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. In the minds of many nonfiction writers, I mean, John McPhee is a god. He is. He is. No debate here. The, the consummate master of his craft. And uh, he's a staff writer, a uh, longtime staff writer at the New Yorker, has at least one Pulitzer Prize. I never know if it's Pulitzer or Pulitzer, but I like saying Pulitzer, so I'll say that. Like it has two umlauts over the U, which it does not. Uh, <laughs> for coming into the country specifically, which was about his time primarily in Alaska. John McPhee is so good at nonfiction writing. And the class that I ended up taking, which was a small seminar, so you applied and provided writing samples, was called The Literature of Fact. What a great name, right? As you would expect of John McPhee. M-C-P-H-E-E. He's so good at exploring and dissecting different subjects that when he writes a book about basketball a sense of where you are related to Bill Bill Bradley, Bradley. it becomes the classic in nonfiction basketball. When he writes a book about tennis, levels of the game, it becomes the classic book on tennis. And it goes on. He wrote an entire book about oranges. He wrote an entire book about a rock.
2: uh,
1: He's he's written entire books about uh, classically carved canoes. (laughs) and you would say to yourself and you may be saying to yourself i would never read a book about oranges. Oh yeah, yeah you would. Yes you would. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes you would. Yeah. And and just just to just to dive into one of the examples i just gave, levels of the game. It's about one tennis match. The entire book is about one tennis match. Conceptually, it's hard for me to imagine anything sounding more boring. And yet, it is absolutely gripping as a page turner and there's a lot more to it as as you would certainly expect but uh well the, what,
0: what's it like to be in a class with a man with a, a god like this
1: ah uh, you know from the very from the first day i felt it was just a huge gift i mean i and i had a, i had a good degree of insecurity going into it i mean we're, we're talking about someone who had david remnick as a student right i mean we're talking about we're talking about a teacher who has not only produced masterpieces himself, but produced students. And I'm not saying, I am not one of them. David
0: Nick being the editor of the that, New York. That's right. right who's
1: produced many students who've gone on to just create incredible, incredible works of art. And I, I, I do not think I'm that person at all, uh, but I could draft behind a lot of those people in the class. So not only was it a gift to learn from uh, Professor McPhee, I can't call him John, it's too weird. There are a bunch of people in my life I just can't (laughs) call by the first name. Uh, It was also a gift to hear the comments and feedback and reading aloud of other students. I do remember very clearly. (laughs) So, all right. Princeton students, generally speaking, pretty confident bunch, sometimes excessively so. Uh, And I remember we had this, the class structure as I remember it was, uh, I want to say one three hour, two or three hour group seminar where Professor McPhee would talk about a given subject, some aspect of structure, which he's very well known for and very visual uh, very visual in his structuring, which helped me because I like to draw right uh, but uh, I recall we we also had weekly writing assignments and these were short, few pages, whatever it was, three to ten pages. I would already done uh, quite a bit of writing in school, so I was comfortable with that and we'd all we 'd all handed in our weekly writing assignments, and we were getting them back and Before he handed them back, I remember he said. Uh, He would then later review our writing assignments with us, which was incredible. He said, before I hand these out, this is paraphrasing, I want you to know you're all good writers. So I don't want you to be thrown off by my edits. You're all good. You got into the class. And he handed back our printed pages that we had given him. And in almost every case, certainly in my case, there was more red ink
0: the black words, oh, <laughs>
1: man. You just saw everybody go, holy shit. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, but you leave that class a writer. Well, you leave that class a better thinker because what McPhee does so well, and he has a book that recently came out called The Fourth Draft about his writing process, which is fantastic. If you're interested in nonfiction writing, if you're really interested then this book is great. If you're kind of sort of interested in nonfiction writing, more interested in reading nonfiction, then just get Levels of the Game or one of his other books. But he is first and foremost good at clarifying thought. So if you have extraneous words, if you have sentences that are nebulous in meaning, if you have a sequence of paragraphs that logically do not make any sense as a progression, he'll point those out. So it really wasn't it wasn't providing you with a fancier set of polished words to use. It wasn't a matter of uh, anything that could be differentiated from clarifying your thinking and putting clearer thinking on paper.
0: I smell efficiency.
1: Yeah, yeah, in a way it certainly would be. I mean, in, in a way it certainly would be. And taking out, it's, and efficiency is one thing. I think also if you look at my interest in, Certain martial arts, if you look at my interest in certain wrestlers, if you look at my interest in writing, I think that the, the corollary, or maybe just, the it's not even a cousin, it's like the twin brother or sister of efficiency, is elegance. So that's something I think about a lot. Because in elegance, you also have the art. It's not just the science. Right, it's right. not just the mechanics; it's also the beauty of it. And for me, uh, the ability to make something more beautiful by removing the things that are adding to drag is just such a cool concept. All the pieces are coming together here. Yeah, it's such a cool concept. Yeah. And uh, I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, and you know, post hoc, it's easy for me to try to put all these things together. Like. Uh, you know Kobayashi on the cup. Oh my God! You know the usual suspects or whatever. <laughs> but the the red doorknob in the Sixth Sense, I was there all along. But uh, my interest in Japan also this the elegance and oh. minimalism of Japan, which I've been obsessed with. Obsessed is a strong word, but I think it applies here for so long. I think it's just the the elegance, and of course in Japan you have the elegance of certain artwork and the minimalism. You also have the efficiency. I mean, we're talking about a a country that I think it was during the Meiji Restoration brought in workplace efficiency and manufacturing efficiency experts who had been largely ignored in the US and elsewhere. And the Japanese would bring them to Japan and then create, say, the entire corporate and manufacturing design culture of Toyota, which ultimately then displaced u s automotive companies then later on right they 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 took what was ignored, incorporated, made it better, made it their own, and then at least at that time won right so all of that was so interesting to me and uh, the literature of fact, just as a, as a side note, and it's not really a side note because it kind of in my mind proves the point, when I took that class without any perceptible additional effort my grades in every other class went up and i think it's be- because the Whoa. thinking the, sh- the sharper thinking translated to every other class yeah
0: and and so at what point is your ability to like control your own journey coming in to play where you can start to live the way you want to live as an artist uh, because you you had that from the drawing did, and the yeah. elegance and also the the ability to navigate the business side so you weren't yeah. dependent on others
1: yeah i i can give you is, is i can there a tell moment, you i can tell you the moment in my life I have felt the richest I've ever felt, and this will relate to everything you just said so little little backstory. so what were my jobs in college to help pay for expenses and everything else well i had I had a bunch of jobs one i was I was an illustrator, so I did work. I did illustration, freelance illustration work, uh, including for Princeton University. So for, say, there was a, what is a student orientation manual that, rec- that needed illustrations. So I did almost all the illustrations for that. Uh, there was, I think there were one or two books that I also did illustrations for. Not my preferred type of illustration. There's mostly backgrounds and architecture on campus and so on, which is not terribly exciting to me. I, I preferred doing live action figures and so on. Humans, animals, but nonetheless, there was that. Then for fun, this is not part of the job but relevant, I was the graphics editor uh at the Princeton Tiger. And the primary reason I took that job, which was fun and allowed me to just goof off and be a bit of a prankster as a satire magazine, much like the Lampoon, was that I went to visit the offices of the Princeton Tiger and they showed me the the desk of the graphic editor. Like, okay, I didn't realize there's a designated desk for the graphics editor, whatever the title was at the time. And I opened one of the drawers and I found a number of drunken sketches from Jim Lee, one of my comic book heroes, oh, who, man. unbeknownst to me at the time, had gone to Princeton, had had that job. And after some revelry, had come back to the office and <laughs> sketched out some drawings. And I said, yeah, I'll take this job. And uh, so that was a job but unpaid. Then I had a job in guest library, which was so I've gone from You
0: know, the pieces are coming together because you'll do a blog and you won't get paid for it. Yep. But you know there's something good's gonna come out of this.
1: Yeah, or good for yeah, good for other people, uh or fun for me or both. Um uh, oh and I had a job at Guest Library, uh, which was the library, the attic, as I remember it at least, the attic library of the East Asian Studies Department. And it was terrible. It was like living in a sauna. It was so hot up there. And I was getting paid whatever it was, seven, eight dollars an hour. Then I was asked, so by this point, I was no longer 100 pounds. I had really gotten into physical training and was whatever I was at the time. Actually, bigger than I am now. So I was probably 180, 190 pounds. And one of my friends said, you know, if you if uh, if you want to make some more money, you should safeguard. Now, safeguarding is bouncing. But at Princeton, they call it safeguarding. And Princeton has this very odd tradition of eating clubs, which are like co-ed social clubs, or for, think of them as fraternities and sororities combined. So there are these co-ed eating clubs where you, as you would expect, eat your meals, where they serve lunch and dinner and so on. And they're all lined up down one street called Nassau Street. And so at least when I was there, students would go out and party and get raucous on Thursday nights and Saturday nights. For whatever reason, those were the nights. Saturday makes sense I'm not sure why Thursday it's a day of recovery so <laughs> Thursday and Saturday and things would happen people would get in fights uh, people would get overly you know men would get overly aggressive with women whatever it would be so they hired security guards to help keep the peace and uh, there were two I remember two different safeguarding agencies as it were and uh, I chose, I ended up working with one that paid, I think, $20 an hour, which to me at the time, I'm like, wow, Big right. time. I'm hitting the big time. So $20 an hour. And uh, long story short, did not enjoy that job. Uh, I was good at it, but I didn't enjoy it because you're nobody's friend. Nobody likes the security when they're drunk. I, I, yeah. Doesn't matter, even if you're actually helping them. Uh and uh, one of my very good friends at the time, who was, I want to say, former former middleweight amateur boxing champion in the Soviet Union, which is a very big deal. Very, very big deal. I mean, that's a, that's, that. that's a, uh, you know, effectively a professional level boxer. And he was a physics graduate student at Princeton. I imagine that, right? It makes sense <laughs> on some level. <laughs> Comic book character of sorts. Fantastic guy. Uh, named Ilya, so if you're out there, Ilya, uh, thank you for being such a good friend when we were in school. <laughs> and uh, he was, uh, I was off duty. I was not working on a given night when he was. We worked together a lot because I trusted him. He trusted me, and we were we were good at the job. We could hand and good at the job does not mean fighting people. By the way, like you, the good at the job means you don't don't you, fight people. Yeah, right? you you defuse situations right? that would have fights, and you handle simple logistics like. Uh, There was this one uh, eating club called Tiger Inn, which was known as being one of the more aggressive eating clubs. A lot of football players, a lot of big athletes, a lot of very heavy drinking culture. And uh, so as a safeguard, you tended to get paid the most when you worked at, say, TI, as it was known, or some of these other more aggressive spots. Because if you're just going, if you're just go, like saving the computer science nerds from each other, that's a, that's a much lower risk Got it. situation, right? And uh, there were at least two doors, but primarily a front door, which everybody tried to come through, and we would check IDs. And then there were, there was a side door, and uh, so you typically have one guard at each, which were which were not separated by a ton of space. And Elia was working with someone that night who, for whatever reason, left his post, left the side door wide open. And, uh, there were a number of, uh, there were a number of throwers, meaning track athletes who were shot putters and discus throwers and hammer throwers and so on, uh, who were visiting for a track meet that weekend and a whole gang of them, huge guys Uh had shown up at the front door and Ilya had turned them away because they didn't have IDs. Uh That's part of the job. And they got really upset and they were like, we're coming back. Okay. What happens? They come around the side door and like one guy grabs him by the neck from behind. Another guy sort of punches him in the liver. And uh, I mean, this is, it doesn't matter if you're Mike Tyson. These like five or six, 230 plus pound guys wailing and kicking you. Oh man. And uh, he ended up in really bad shape. Yeah. And uh, that that's when I stopped safeguarding. Because so I said, A, it's kind of like motorcycle riding. It doesn't matter how good you are on the motorcycle, because there are other people who are bad at driving. Similarly, it doesn't matter if you're Bruce Lee, Mike, Tyson combined, if you're working a two-person configuration and one person leaves the side door. No control, man. No you control. Got no control. Zero, you're done. Okay.
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa. We gotta pause now. Cause Kevin, the manager, tells me. It's time to talk about the people who make all this possible. Our sponsors. Ah, you know why I'm so relaxed? Because I just solved a problem that's been bothering me for a long time. I've had this website and it was was good, but I always wanted to customize it, make it my own. And then... I was introduced to Squarespace when they became part of this podcast. It's amazing. They allow you to customize everything with beautiful templates, looks great on mobile, and it's easy to use. So, right here, right now, I'm telling you, I'm taking down the old website and putting up a new one with Squarespace. I'm a free man. Head to Squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code FUSMAN to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. Enjoy. You know, I talk with companies about hiring and the interviewing process all the time. So I know how busy people are and how difficult and time-consuming finding the right candidate can be. That's why I was overjoyed to have ZipRecruiter be a part of this podcast. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 top job boards in just one click. Within minutes of your post, ZipRecruiter's smart matching technology will notify qualified candidates about your job. But here's what I really love. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. That's why 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And check it out. Anyone who hears me right now can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman. F-U-S-S-M-A-N. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We're back.
1: So I stopped safeguarding and I and started. That's, that's a moment where you're
0: really gripping control over your, over your life.
1: Uh, no, no, I'm going to get there. So okay. I, I realized that I didn't want to go back to $8 an hour in the sauna library. Uh, I needed money. So what could I do? Now I should also say simultaneously. With all of this, like my interest in entrepreneurship has increased because there were some entrepreneurship classes at Princeton, uh, which I one of which I joined at the same time as McPhee's class, which was later called High Tech Entrepreneurship, which had a huge, huge impact on my life with uh, someone named Ed Shaw, who was a real mentor. But even before that, what I'd started doing as I was making a little bit of money, bussing tables and so on, is I would call. <laughs> the numbers this is something i didn't do as a kid still going to sleep at 3 a.m. right so i'd see these infomercials and i would call the numbers and i i had figured out how to take a tiny little uh micro cassette recorder and go to radio shack and i could rec- i know this is probably illegal but so don't try this at home kids but <laughs> i i could connect it to record conversations because I wanted to know what the scripts were. It's like, okay, well, I knew what happened on the TV. What happens when you call? And if I say no, if they try to convince me, and then I say, oh, it's $29.99. Yeah, I can't afford that. What happens? What do they say? What do they do? And then if they send something to me, if, if if I buy something, which I didn't do until college. So in college, then I was like, all right, well, let me try to buy, let me order something. And if I, what's the return process? If I send it back, what happens? Oh, man. Uh, if I cancel, what happens? How quickly does it get to me? Do they use first class mail or do they use priority mail? Do they use UPS? I wanted to just, I just was so, I wanted to know the details. And ultimately, uh, I had, uh, I, have, I have something really, I don't know how common it is. I don't have dyslexia. I can read fine. But I have uh, some dysgraphia. So Ds, Bs end up getting mixed up or Ps and Bs get mixed up. Let, I will write letters backwards or upside down. I still do to this day, in English at least. And uh, uh, so I had also realized at Princeton, so I, ha- I have some, some issues with producing text. Uh, reading text a little less so, but the reading volume, this is going somewhere, was so high at Princeton, if you were actually going to do the classroom reading, which i'm convinced eighty percent of people do not <laughs> which is fine, but I at the time felt like that was a requirement for doing well in school. Uh, now, certainly learning and becoming a better human in a liberal arts education should probably be the priority, but ultimately students want to do well and anyone who's gotten into Princeton is probably very competitive, so I was, I was struggling. To do all of this reading, there was so much. Uh, and uh, towards the end of high school, and then leading into Princeton, where you know on my f- cl- on my floor in Forbes, which is one of the residential colleges, I remember kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, kind of explains a lot that goes on in, in our world when these people then go on to Goldman Sachs and stuff. But uh, they were like, "Oh, you got eighteen hundred on your SAT? Yeah, me too. What did you do for this?" And so all these kids on my on my Hallway got perfect scores on their SATs, which I did not. I actually was my SATs were much lower than the average for uh, Princeton uh, because I didn't finish them. I was too much of a perfectionist. I actually never finished the test, uh, and I took it multiple times. Uh, so we could we could psychoanalyze that, but this is all going somewhere. So I compensated in a way once I got to Princeton, by continuing to look at accelerated learning and speed reading techniques. So could you accelerate your reading speed without sacrificing comprehension? And there's a lot of voodoo and witchcraft and nonsense out there, but there are a handful of methods for increasing reading speed that make perfect sense. If you're just looking at at how the eyes function and how they feed into the optic nerve and how one, through fixation points and so on, cicadic movements, I think is how you pronounce also the jumps that reading entail, reading entails made scientific sense to me. Like the mechanisms were all plausible. There wasn't any hand waving. It's like, okay, no, that just like structurally makes sense to me. Uh, so yes, efficiency I, again. So it's like, all right, well, if, you're, if your eye travels across a line and let's say you close one eye and you try to read a line of text, you'll notice these herky-jerky movements. All right, those are these saccadic movements, jumps from fixation point to fixation point, your eye doesn't travel in a smooth line across, uh, say, a sentence on a page. It just does not. And if you can then reduce the number of fixations you have per line, well, if you go from three to two, you've smoothing just- Smoothing the line. You're smoothing the line and you're just going to move a lot faster. Uh, so I began doing that for myself, and after my friend got his head kicked in, I said, "Well, what if I took all the stuff that I've been taking notes on? Because I've always been a compulsive note taker. So all of the, all of the uh, infomercial stuff. Another thing that I ended up doing at that time was, and I didn't come up with this. I had I had heard it or read it somewhere. I I started to create a three ring binder." where if i if i were reading a magazine or an article and i found an advertisement that made me want to buy something i would take it out and i would put it into a three-ring binder to try to figure out why it made me want to buy it so i had all of these all of these expedition findings kind of like the butterfly and the butterfly species and so on that darwin or someone would collect to analyze later but in my case they were advertisements that made me want to buy something. And then I would later try to deconstruct why they made me want Man, to buy something. Man, you're just looking into the whole process of the business side. Yeah, but I hadn't pulled the trigger. I hadn't really tried anything. Uh, that's not entirely true. I tried something bef- uh, a few years before that. I think it was the very beginning of Princeton, which did not work, which was an audiobook on how to get into good colleges. And uh, I, I made a bunch of mistakes. Uh, the first of which was, Coming up with a product, I was convinced would sell a million copies (laughs) and not testing, not testing it before manufacturing. So I took all the money I'd made from all this busboying and so on and invested it in manufacturing 400 audio cassette tapes or something like that. I think one or two of which I sold, one to my mom. (laughs) I think it was, she had bought it and then later told me, but and then won to God knows who. So it was, it was a huge loss. I didn't throw out those tapes until like 10 years later, by the way. I was like, someday, no. Someday people <laughs> will see. People
0: will realize. People will realize the gold in this.
1: <laughs> uh, total failure. And then I uh, I realized that I could looking at these various advertisements and so on do what's called a dry test and that means you are selling something before you manufacture anything secondly based on buying little things here and there and listening to and re- the the phone tr- the phone scripts right because these operators use decision trees in these scripts it's like if some if the person says no to this do this if they say yes to this do this if they say yes then try to upsell them to this If they say no then try to downsell them to this and if they agree to blah 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 then at the very end offer them this if the very if at this point they say no i can't do it then you offer them payment terms if whatever it might be so there are all these different contingency plans and i put together uh, i think it was called <laughs> this was right before the uh this was right before the dot-com bust so this is like 90 98, 99 and i think i called it speed reading 2.0 or something like that or enhanced speed reading i can't remember the exact name and uh i i put out this flyers so i printed out these colorful flyers and uh I promised a a three hundred percent increase. I think it was a three hundred percent increase in reading speed, which you can measure words per minute reading speed, in a three hour seminar. Or you got and this
0: is a four hour work week. Yeah, yeah it, this yeah. is the foundation of it. Yeah,
1: or you get you get you get a hundred and ten percent of your money back. So if it doesn't work, <laughs> oh, no. if it doesn't work, you make money, right? So you're going to come you out. Certainly of it. weren't
0: deterred by those original
1: cassettes. Because I had no out of pocket out of pocket expenses, right? So this is a this is a service which ultimately is why I stopped doing it. But this is a service, so uh, I I then proceeded just so that I wouldn't be caught with my pants down if it actually worked, which I didn't expect it would necessarily. But my downside was so was so limited that it didn't matter. It was an asymmetrical risk-reward benefit, right? Which is always what I look for even to this day. It's like, all right, well, how can I cap my downside? Because if I, if I always cap my downside, if I, have the, if I can really minimize the downside, eventually the upside will take care of itself, right? If I have enough at-bats. So so, the, so I had these flyers all over the place and then I had my, I guess, my dorm room phone number. I don't think I had a cell phone at that point and my email address, <laughs> but I had to find a location. I couldn't afford a location. <laughs> because I wasn't safeguarding any longer and I had $8 an hour. So I was like, all right, there were, I don't think there was any date on the flyer because I wanted the flexibility of like figuring out how to finagle some type of space. And I found a church in town that had a, I want to say it was a daycare area for, for kids. <laughs> Where is that, this going? That, that would not be used on Saturday afternoons. There was some period of time in which that was available. And so I went in, god, I haven't thought about this in a long time. And uh, I tithed, I tithed a little bit. It wasn't very much, but like I tithed some money to the church. And I said, uh I've noticed you have this space. And I was just trying to put two and two together. And I was like, is there any time when this is not used? And is there any possibility I could use it? I'm a first time, or not a first time, And I said I'm a aspiring entrepreneur trying this class. I explained the whole thing. I said, I, I don't know if it's going to work. It might not. Could be two people, could be more. I have no idea. But would it be possible to potentially use this space for a few hours and I'll leave it in better shape than I found it when I leave? and uh, thankfully they took i guess mercy on me or whatever uh had some empathy and they let me use the space or they said i could use the space <clears throat> and uh and then at that point emails and calls started coming in so now i'm now i have to sell on the phone
0: oh all well the stuff that yeah. you learned from the well, guess, oh, i guess mean, guess what oh, no, man. i've already i've already listened to a <laughs> oh,
1: no. hundred operators sell on the phone. Who are backed by companies that are spending tens and hundreds of millions of dollars on ensuring that the scripts work? Oh man! And uh, this is beautiful. So I end up my first seminar with—I want to say it was just for the sake of simplicity—30 people. So I have a full room of people, 30 people, and they—they uh, they come with cash. You know, they've got tens and twenties and fives. They come with checks. And uh, not a single refund. So I'm, I survive my first three hours. <laughs> I deliver the measurables, right? So the key performance indicator for you startup folks out there: the words per minute rate with equal or better retention, at least you know tripled, or or in many cases quintupled. And I just remember walking out of that seminar with pockets full of checks. And 20s and 10s. I mean, I made $1,500 in three hours. So keep in mind, like, wow. I had made, the most I had made up to that point was $20 an hour doing something that was risking life and limb, right? And then I go into this church daycare room and I walk out with $1,500. There it is. And I just remember, and I couldn't even fit, fit them in my pockets. I remember I had to, like, fold up checks Bold, and, your and, pockets
0: are bulging. Yeah, you I, had, I, had to fold,
1: I had to fold them while I was on a bike. And I remember going straight to PNC Bank. It's my first bank account. Just immediately, I was like, I have to deposit these right away. And so going straight to the bank and having money and checks sort of pressed to the grips on the handlebars because they couldn't fit in my pockets. So I had these death grips on my bike as I went to PNC Bank and deposited that. And I mean, it it really was that day where I was like, holy shit, this can actually work. You actually can do this. And I did a, a handful more of those seminars, but ultimately realized, you, know, you have to be in one place to do this, right? It's a service. right? So it's still on some level is physical presence, hours in, money out. And uh, so I stopped doing that uh, when I graduated. And so the that moment
0: and what, might happen with money. That sounds like a springboard in it in itself.
1: Because up until that point, had you ever invested in anything? No. No. No, no. Actually, you know, I had with the help of my dad invested in one company. And, the, you know, man, if I think about it, like my investment approach hasn't changed that much. Uh, Pixar was my first ever investment. Whoa! Uh, because what oh, that makes sense? Uh, when, when man, you're the artist. I you're... was the comic book artist. I loved oh. it. I, I loved animation. So I knew. I felt like I understood the world of comic books and animation really well. Pixar was coming out with Toy Story, and that's your first investment. And that was that was the first investment I ever made. The only investment that I recall making until much, much, much later, I mean, well after college, uh, I, I I don't like things I can't control, like public stocks, right? I didn't feel like later I overcomplicated investment for myself. I read a lot of books on investment, and it scared me off. Whereas, in fact, my best investments <laughs> to date have, uh, have come- whether it's like, yeah, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Uber, Alibaba, all these... Because I really, really like, I play in those sandboxes. Like I understood them so well, and I used, I've used all of them. Right? Uh, See, so yeah, Pixar was was my only investment, small amount of money. Uh, and no, nothing up to that up to that point in terms of external investments. I invested a lot in myself, but uh, well, I came into this thinking that you were a one
0: man partnership but I see now that there are like five different people in there (laughs) doing all these different things, having all these different
1: talents, but. And and neuroses and (laughs) difficulties and weaknesses, which Uh, might explain all the voices in my head. Yeah. And, and so at what point
0: is it that the four hour work week is going to be born? Like, the, is there a, a, a moment in your mind where, we could see where everything is leading in that direction, but is there a moment where you know, there it is? The lifestyle or the book? Well, I,
1: it sounds like the lifestyle led to the book. Well, so the lifestyle was, was experienced and enjoyed and then somewhat forgotten. So I had that experience with the seminar. Then I became intoxicated by the possibility of tech millions and billions, because this is keep in mind All 98, 99 squeezed in your hand. <laughs> okay. And uh, this was also when a I'm not going to say classmate, but schoolmate, a few years ahead of me, had sold Bluemountain.com for something like three or four hundred million dollars. And there were a number of other examples like that. I mean, this is certainly at the top of froth right preceding the first tech boom. And those numbers were mind-boggling to me. Right, I mean, it's, it's one thing to make $1,500. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite another thing to make $400 million. But something should be pointed out here,
0: the same way you were talking about like, growing up in the era of Schwarzenegger and Van Damme, you're growing up in the era of yeah. a kid in college starting something that can make four hundred million dollars oh yeah yeah I mean those were
1: the those were the new heroes right and I took this class I had mentioned earlier high tech entrepreneurship with ed Shaw, which i which I had to uh, negotiate uh with him to get into because I had been <laughs> this is highly relevant so it'll 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 tie in but i had uh i had gone to China. And uh, as an East Asian studies major, I was first neuroscience, and there's a long story behind the trans- the transition. But uh, I, th- I do actually think some uh, animal testing is very, very important. Uh, but I couldn't do it myself. It wasn't torture. It was just uh, what they would call perfusing rats after injecting them with retroviruses and so on. I, I couldn't sacrifice the animals necessary to, to do that, uh, to work in the lab I wanted to work in. So I became an East Asian Studies major, uh, nonetheless taking all of these other classes like McPhee's class. And at the same time, uh, Ed Shao enters the picture. And his class, along with McPhee's, were in, uh, I want to say this book was the something like the Student rev- Class Review Guide. That's not the right name, but it was something like that. So it was similar to a registrar's list of classes you could take but it was an analog version of, say, Yelp. So students could actually rate these classes and give feedback. And Ed Shao's class was, uh, along with McPhee's, way, way up at the very top of the heap. And he was teaching people how to build businesses, how to build companies that could get sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. But I had, as an East Asian Studies major, taken time to go to China to study at two universities, and I came back and I missed the deadline. I'd missed the deadline for applying. So I, uh, I wrote a letter to Professor Schall. I said, I'll do any, ultimately, I mean, I, I made my case and ultimately said, uh, I, don't need a, I don't need a seat. If the room's full, I can sit on the floor. If you need me to help, I can, I can clean the erasers after class. Like, I will do whatever is necessary. How please, can you say please, no? Please let me take this class. And eventually he did. So he let me take this class. And uh, that class (laughs) led me to want to jump in to the tech world. Uh, And uh, there was one class, uh, I'm sorry, one company that he had invested in called TruSan Networks, which is a storage area networking company. So at the time, what would have been considered mass data storage. So petabytes and petabytes of data. Oh my God. You know, who could imagine? Now you can go to uh now you can go to Fry's Electronics and buy, you know, a terabyte for $70. But back in the day, we were talking about hundreds of systems worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars that you'd be selling to, say, American Airlines or to the FBI or whoever it might be, National Geographic Survey. And uh in that class, we had to do a final project. There were different options for what types of final projects you could do. One was profiling a company. So I decided to profile TruSan as a way to hopefully get my foot in the door and get a job. Yeah. Long story short, did the whole, did the whole final project and <laughs> tried to get the job and was turned down. And uh, graduated with no job. Parents were very after all this. After all this parents, were, oh. par, parents were very supportive. They're like, okay. "Take your time, you can come home." But for myself, even after a month or two of no job after graduation, You're starting to get antsy, antsy and panicky. So every every maybe two weeks, I would be emailing this poor CEO, Thomas at TruSan to try to get my foot back in the door to get a job. And uh, I had heard all these stories of negotiation and so on from Ed also in this in this class because he taught at Harvard Business School and he, and he used the case study method. So we were looking at real stories of real companies, tough decisions they had to make, and then the class, each student and the class as a whole, would debate what they would do given this decision the company or person's facing. And then you get to read about what actually happened. So rejection, no, no thanks. Sorry, we have an in-house uh, human resources person. They are completely backed up. We have more applicants than we can handle. Thanks, but no thanks. He was very polite about it, considering how. But no, much no, 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 And then I was, I was, I was going to give up, <laughs> and I was like, you know, let me just try one more hail Mary, and I sent him an email, which was along these lines, you know. Uh, hi, Thomas, uh, I, I I realized I left out a few pages on competitive analysis in my final project, which was true, uh, that could relate to you, how you compete with network appliance and EMC. Those were the two primary competitors. Uh, as it turns out, this was the part that wasn't true, as it turns out, I'm going to be in the Bay Area anyway. They were based in San Jose. Right. I have a couple of job interviews and meetings, would it be possible to swing by and give you these pages and just thank you for the time that you spent with me when I was doing the final project? Which, of course, he could read right through. I would imagine so. <laughs> and uh, so he, he replied back, once again, politely, sorry. Like, thanks, but no thanks. Appreciate the persistence, but we don't have space. Then he had a change of heart, and he said, okay, I can meet you, from, I can meet you on Tuesday, I I think this was the exact time from one to one fifteen. I was like, oh okay, I, I like, gotta great, fly. Great, out. I'll see you there. So I couldn't. I didn't have the money because I, I I had. Uh, I mean, I burned through any of the savings from the speed reading stuff. Right. Didn't have a whole lot of money, so I bought a standby ticket to, Calif- oh, no. to California. Uh, on a standby ticket, you don't, at least at that time, you didn't check luggage. So I had carry-on only, which meant I wore my only my ill-fitting suit, like the only suit I had, oh, at, couldn't afford a hotel. So I stayed at a kickboxing gym, which for those of you in San Francisco, this might make sense. There was a gym called Fairtex, which was located on Clementina Street. This is in 99, probably, 99, 2000, between... Fifth and sixth between Folsom and Howard. That's not a good place to be. It was bad, like a really bad place. But it was cheaper than staying at a hotel to pay for a fly-in kickboxing camp. And you got to live on the on the upper floor sleeping on a bunk bed with some of the Thai instructors, which meant I also had to to clean my clothing in the sink there, which I did, and it was fine. <laughs> no. I didn't have any other meetings. So I, I, I very much... Uh, hastened to set up other meetings so that I wouldn't feel like I had all my eggs in one basket. But now I had something real to hold on to. Hey, I have, a, I have an interview in San Jose 15 I with, with TrueSend Networks. <laughs> While I'm there, I would love to chat with blah, blah, blah. So I was able to actually set up a couple of meetings and uh, got there at one o'clock and Tom was delayed. I was like, <gasps> all right, one, one, one o'clock comes and goes, One fifteen comes and goes, One thirty comes and goes. And uh, the receptionist, I think her name was Carly. God, she was a sweetheart, she was awesome too. She was really, not a receptionist, she was really the, I mean, what we would call probably chief of staff now, that term didn't exist then. In startups, she was amazing. And uh, she said, all right, well, Tom's delayed, but he'd love for you to meet with Mark. So I met with Mark, who was the COO, if I remember correctly, great guy. And we chatted for 30, 40 minutes, however long it was. Foots in the door. Yeah, and eventually met with Tom, and it was a very short meeting. Nice to meet you, or nice to see you again, because he'd met me. He'd spoken at the class. And he said, "Uh, so let me get this, just so I'm clear. You're not going to stop bothering me until I give you a job? (laughs) And I said, yeah, I suppose that's about right. He goes, okay, great, you're in sales. (laughs) Wow. So I I found out later the second to lowest paid employee... (laughs) (laughs) At the company. Who was the lowest? They did not, uh, one of their like part time receptionists. Okay. Uh, Because uh, later, one of my friends asked for his paid time off. And so someone sent him a a spreadsheet with the other names deleted. This is not what you do, by the way, if you're sending someone their paid time off. Uh, But it was an Excel spreadsheet and they'd forgotten to delete another tab, which had everyone else's compensation and stock options. So my friend's like, dude, you need to see this. He's like, you're the lowest on the totem pole. But I, was, uh, I, I, I got the job, and uh, that came later. But I, they, they didn't have space for me, so I but was now you're in sales. I was crammed into a desk in a fire exit, literally like in that tiny doorway in a fire exit. And then I had my, I think we called them systems engineers who were support for technical sales, which I would be. Brian, who's a really good guy. And, uh, yeah, got to it. Now, that job ultimately uh, disappeared because the company, like so many at the time, imploded. Rapid growth, 9-11 happens, oh, financing man. starts to dry up. and But, yeah, we've got another piece to the puzzle S- here. Saw the death knell. So, around that time, I saw the writing on the wall, and I said, okay, this is going away. What else do I know? Like I knew the speed ring at the time. And what I did is, this is I'll, I'll try to keep it short, but I looked at my, one of the things I did is I looked at my credit card statements to determine how how I spent money. Where did I spend the most money? Where was I price insensitive? Like for, for the small amount of money I was making in the Bay Area, which was at that time ex- still extremely expensive. I mean, it, it was because there was so much demand, right? There was less supply than demand. So I had roommates and the whole nine. Uh, what do I understand? What could I make that I I use myself where I'm price insensitive? So I could go high end right? as opposed to low end. And it was uh, sports nutrition, so athletic nutrition. And then during lunch hours, began using the conference lines in empty rooms at TruSan to try to lay the groundwork for this new company that I would make. And uh, I mean, I didn't have the money or the connections for anything. Uh, But I did realize through all the cold calling that I did to CEOs and CTOs who were the people I needed to sell to for my job, that nine to five is the worst time to make phone calls. You either want to call, well, and or- Seven in the morning. Yeah, seven in the morning or like 6.30 at night. Because very often the people who started the companies, the, the presidents, the CEOs, whoever- were there early or there late, and the gate the gatekeepers were not. So, I started connecting with people in this black box of sports nutrition who really like to keep it a black box for many many reasons because there are contract manufacturers who make different products for competing brands and so on. Uh, started to figure it out, and I had a just enough kind of uh, neuroscience background and also certainly experience as a consumer to know what I wanted. And then asked all of my coworkers who also were, I mean, smart enough to see the writing on the wall, like, wow, all right, if a bunch of inside salespeople have been sold or been fired rather, who, I guess in some ways they were sold <laughs> to other companies, but who had been fired inside, meaning they book meetings for people like me, their job is outbound phone calls, but they don't leave the office. If a bunch of inside salespeople have been fired, it's just a matter of time before all the outside's. People are fired, right? So this is just the f- the first round of layoffs. And uh, I asked them. I said, "Hey guys, I think we all know where this is going. I'm trying to start a new company. Like, if I have to, I'll guilt you, but can you please just commit to buying one bottle each, right? So what did this give me? Then I have twenty of my friends who commit to buying one bottle of something that doesn't exist yet, which gives me just enough money. Get the crowd (laughs) before you sell the product. Yeah, yeah, you need to get the crowd because then you've tested the market, right? So are these people willing to actually spend their money to buy this thing I'm thinking about making? Ultimately, through guilt, hopefully product features and benefits, they agreed to do it. And that gave me just enough money, which was like 20% of what I actually needed to do a manufacturing run to give me the confidence that I could then go negotiate and pitch the manufacturer to have them drop their minimum to what I could afford. Um, because I, I laid out the vision for what this could be and that I'd stick with them as a manufacturer. And it's a bet, but it's a low risk bet for them. It would make a huge difference. I'm sure someone helped you and you were just getting started. There's probably one person you can remember. Please just give me that one chance. And uh, they were very kind, they agreed, and I kept true to my word. The company exploded, and I I stuck with them, and and they made a lot, a lot, a lot of money because of it. Um, Ultimately, so just to flash forward, so that company, what I thought was going to be a dream, ended up becoming a nightmare. The company ended up running me instead of the other way around. I didn't know how to manage. I did not know how to scale without Myself remaining a bottleneck, very different from having a seminar, which is very simple, fewer moving pieces. And I burned out, and I lost a very important relationship. This girlfriend walked out. I had expected to probably propose to. And oh man, I I, everything's going up in flames. Everything's going up in flames. Now, in the meantime, because I'm bootstrapping this, Ed Shao had invited me to give this lecture twice a year on how i was growing my company
0: you're up in flames and now you're coming in to speak about growing your company well
1: now but keep in mind the company itself was successful but i felt you're personally unsuccessful right i got it and i I was certainly unhappy Uh, so the mechanics of how to build i could teach but the the inner workings and the contentment and so on were a separate conversation but I'm doing this twice a year, and the talk is changing as I'm changing, right? And uh, in 2004, which is when all of these things start melting down, I took a what I thought was going to be a four-week trip, one one-way ticket to London to either rethink all the systems in the business so that I could remove myself as a bottleneck or shut it down. And it ended up working. And I took notes on all this because I'm constantly keeping notes, right? And started then imparting some of this in these twice-a-year classes, lectures that I'm giving to students in high-tech entrepreneurship, this class I had taken. And ultimately, that four-week trip turned into 18 months of traveling around the world. And, I mean, you know the siren song of travel. Once you start, it's addictive. So I ended up with no itinerary. I'd run my whole life in 15-minute or 10-minute outlook increments for so many years, and now I had no plans. So, if three people said, "What are you doing here? You should go to Galway in Ireland because they have an art festival." They're like, okay, I'll go to Galway, and so the, the four-hour work week is born. That's right. So, I'm taking notes. Oh, on, I'm taking notes on all of this. I'm journaling, and I remember where I was exactly. Where I was, I was in a, I was in an apartment in a place called Barrio Norte in Argentina in Buenos Aires. And I had a roommate from Sweden at the time, this really funny dude uh, with dreadlocks, a uh, black guy. And he had given me a couple hours to, to, to do the class via Skype. And I, and I completely reformulated the class. And I focused instead of on how to scale a business, I talked about what I termed lifestyle design. So how do you start with... The end in mind for how you want to spend your hours day to day in this finite resource. And how do you then reverse engineer that with a company or a career? And no writer would ever think like (laughs) this, man. So I taught this class. And one thing I did for every class, and this won't surprise you, because uh, if you'll recall, I did all these experiments with returning products and everything. So Oh, I would no. I would one, I would send a feedback form to all the students and, one, and I would ask them for different types of feedback, and then one of them was other comments. Do you have any other comments or suggestions or questions? And one of the students in typical Princeton like Dickish fashion, I don't think it was actually a, a real recommendation. I think it was just a snarky response, said, I don't understand why you're teaching a class of 30 students. Why don't you just write a book and be done with it? <laughs> oh, no. Well, oh, no, but oh, yes. So that then, keep in mind. Well, yeah, oh, but no, what, but oh, oh but, yes. But what's, what's, what's my situation at the time? I have insomnia, as I did before. I can't go to bed until 3 in the morning. What don't you have in Argentina? I didn't have TV. So my mind would race and come up with potential book I didn't want to write a book. I had a very uh, horrifying experience with my senior thesis in college, so I had never wanted to write. I had vowed I would not write. and uh, But to get to sleep, I had to write down these chapter ideas and uh, what I thought were just frivolous ideas for chapter beginnings, endings, points I could make, stories I could tell about all these people I'd met during my travels who in, in epitomized what I was talking about. Just to get to sleep, I took it out of my head and put it on paper, which is something I still do today and finally end up back in the u s and I had this huge stack of paper. Thank God for insomnia, thank God for insomnia and uh, i'll give I'll give thanks to uh, Jack Canfield here so so several years before when I first moved to Silicon Valley, I had volunteered, which is the best way I think to to build the network quickly in a place you don't know, I had volunteered for an organization called the Silicon Valley Association of Startup Entrepreneurs, and they did events. So I started just, whatever, taking out the trash. Uh, The great thing about volunteering is that most people, because they're not getting paid, do the bare minimum or a little less than the bare minimum. But I went in and I was like, all right, I know I'm taking out the, out the trash, but the iced tea isn't refilled over there. Let me go refill the iced tea. Literally, that's all I needed to do for the people managing the event to be like, that kid's a go getter. Let's have him do more. (laughs) Like, I refilled the damn iced tea. And within a month or two, they were inviting me to planning meetings. And then I said, they asked if anyone would like to volunteer to spearhead the next event, which meant inviting speakers. And I raised my hand and they let me do it. So I got to invite people. I wanted to meet, including someone named Jack Canfield, who co-created Chicken Soup for the Soul, which has sold hundreds of millions of copies. Oh, man. So I get back from the US. I haven't bothered Jack in any way. I haven't asked him for anything. He's still a friend to this day, by the way. And I took some of the notes And I was back in the Bay Area, had no idea what to do with my life. I was fine. I wasn't upset. I was a very happy guy at that point, very content. Had cash flow from the business. And I sent him a couple of notes and I said, Jack, you know, this student said this. Here's some of my ideas. What do you think I should do with this? I don't really want to write a book, but what are your thoughts? and uh, before I knew it, Jack was like, all right, I want you to meet this guy, Steve. I want you to meet this person, Jillian. I want you to meet this other woman, blah, blah, blah. And he started making introductions. He said, I think it's great. You should do it. I could see it working on Fox and Friends. And he started, before I could say no, making introductions to potential agents and so on. And uh, ultimately, because I had the time, put together a proposal, which is a business plan, right? And uh, Which you're good at. Yeah, which I'm good at. I'd learned how to do. And uh, because you're seeing this from the bottom of the business process first. Yeah, I could think about finding the market, who's the market, right? Is was the, it easier the, uh, for you to
0: write the proposal or the book?
1: The proposal by 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 a thousandfold. Yeah, because the proposal's selling. Right. The book is teaching. Yeah. Those are very different things. And See, in
0: my case,
1: yeah. The book is easy, the proposal like it just shoots Fear through me, oh sure, yeah. A lot of writers, a lot of writers don't like feel very uncomfortable selling themselves. Uh, but I think the easiest way, or the reason that was easy for me to overcome, is realizing that to sell effectively, you don't have to overpromise. You don't have to blow a lot of smoke. You just have to state the facts using the tools you already have, which are which is wordsmithing and logical progression and all this stuff that you would get from, say a certainly class, from John McPhee. Certainly from John McPhee. Logical thinking, right? right? You're just taking out the things that are extraneous that might hurt you. Uh, you're not covering anything up, but you're just telling you're presenting the case like an attorney would. In the, in the most, most com- efficient way. Efficient, compelling way possible. And, and, like and so uh, Steve Hanselman ended up. Who was who had just moved from being a, a superstar editor and publisher to being an agent, ended up signing on for this wild ride. And uh, do you but, have
0: any idea where this is going at this no, point?
1: No, no, no. The book was rejected twenty. I want to say twenty. I I, I lose track of the number sometimes. It was either twenty seven, somewhere between twenty six and twenty nine times. It was it was rejected by editors and and publishers. And what are uh, you feeling when these? Rejections come in. It was less... You're in sales, so yeah. rejections is normal. It's it's normal. I also... Uh, so for wh- a writer,
0: wh- that's devastating. Yeah,
1: so what I had that they didn't have, and this is the reason, rather than feeling sad or rejected, I felt angry and righteous, uh, <laughs> which also, by the way, is a double-edged sword. That doesn't always work so well. But the reason I felt... <laughs> I felt I knew I was right and I felt righteous and I was just pissed at these people is because I had data. I taught 20 classes. I had feedback forms. I had the experiences. You had the goods. You I knew I knew it sold. I knew it could sell and I knew it worked. More more importantly, right? So it's one thing to say sell medicine. It's quite another to go through all the trials and so on to ensure that the medicine works. I knew the medicine worked and they were Whatever, you know what? Their there rejection letters in some cases are so rude. They were too stupid. Uh, not all of them, right? Some people were very gracious. And looking back at the proposal, which I've done, quite frankly, it does read a bit like the chest puffing of an overconfident at the time, 29 year old, which I was like, it, it is it is a little much. Like, I'll be honest. Like, I could see why someone who's a very seasoned vet who's had 20 years in publishing would read it and so just roll their eyes. roll their yeah. eyes. I can understand that. But many of them were too lazy or stupid to ask any questions. And if they had asked some questions, they would have realized this is a low-risk bet with a high-potential return that's been tested. And if they were investors, which they are, by the way, that's what publishers are, they are recruiting talent and investing in talent, like just like a baseball team, that they should have taken that bet, and they didn't. Now, ultimately, uh, Crown, which is an imprint within random house at the time which i guess is random penguin or whatever it is now <laughs> uh was my I, I could not make this up i mean it sounds like a cheesy scene from a movie that would from a screenplay that would not get sold but last meeting in new york so i've had a chance to refine the pitch through all these meetings when i'm getting rejected You're still getting no, no, no 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 no, no thank you no, come back later. Very venture capital. I mean, there's there's there are there are a lot of similarities between publishers and venture capitalists. A lot of polite, kind of soft, nebulous no's. Like, well, maybe if it's successful, we want this guy for a second book. So I'm not going to be too rude now. Uh, we just pass uh, which on is this one, one. which is smarter, which yeah. is smarter than being rude. Uh, but ultimately, Heather Jackson, who was the uh, editor slash sort of talent scout, right? Because they're acquiring editors and they are talent scouts. They have to find authors had been contacted by Steve and she set up a meeting where at the time, the the the, the decider was Steve Ross and had this meeting. There are like 20 people in the room. I mean, it's just a kind of a death star meeting, uh, much like people may have experienced at, say, a CAA or WME, right? You walk in, you're just like, wait a second, I thought I was meeting with one person. Why are there 20 people here? Uh, at that point, I'm used to it, though. It's like, all right, this is just how publishing works. And... Uh, went through the whole pitch, the whole nine yards, and seemed to be getting like head nods here and there, but I, I didn't. F- I didn't feel like it was there. Like this, this date was not going to be consummated. <laughs> like, like it was, it was close, but it wasn't quite there. And uh, so, so I've heard this now from or Steve, my agent, has heard it from other people in publishing who were at Crown at the time that this is what made the difference. So at the very end, Steve said, all right, or it might have been Heather. It was either Steve or Heather, but they said, all right, well, this has been a great meeting. Do you have anything else to say or to ask before I wrap up? And I said, yeah, I do. And I said, if you look at my track record, if you look at the things that I've done, I have never half-assed anything. I have an extremely high pain tolerance. So if you take the small bet on this book, I will stop at nothing. I will kill myself to make this a bestseller. I will do everything within my power. I will find other people who can help me with things outside of my power to make this succeed. And Did you little, see it on anybody's face, a reaction? I looked straight at Steve because right. he was the one who was going to make the decision. And... There's was a little pause. They said, okay, thank you very much. Uh, and then they bought the book. Uh, news came, I guess, a few days later, a week later maybe. They bought it for a pittance, which, good for them. They should, right? I mean, they're in a much more leveraged negotiating position after 27 rejections. <laughs> Why would you pay a premium? And wow. uh, amazing, boom. So that was, and I remember when the book came out and there was... A lot, of course, that I'm doing to, to make sure that I am true to my word. I didn't expect it. Well, to, the other thing is, you yeah. know, get the crowd. Yeah. Then yeah. do the selling. Then you do so the selling. So I
0: imagine that you were out getting the crowd in the meantime.
1: Well, there are different crowds, too. Uh, and that is, there are different sets of customers, even for a single product. So in other words, I knew that to sell to readers, I had to first sell to publishers. Right? And to sell to readers, you then have to also sell through publishers to distributors. So I knew that I had to have a story and material for all of those groups. For the book to succeed, it wasn't enough to just sell books to the end reader. I had to know who the customers were who enabled the book to be shepherded to ideal position in a retailer. And yeah, you just broke the, bris- the business cycle down yep. piece by piece. Oh, yeah. And even when choosing covers, I took different covers— I went to the Borders, which no longer exists, in Palo Alto on University Ave, and I found a book that was the same size in the new arrivals or the new nonfiction area, and I wrapped it with the different covers. And I did this between, say, 5 and 8 p.m., so prime time, and I would sit there and I'd keep track of how many times each cover was picked up. So I'd give each one, say, 30 minutes, and I'd compare which cover got picked up the most and
0: oh man no writer thinks yeah, like yeah, this
1: yeah. yeah even the even the title for our work week was not the original title the original title is terrible the original title is lifestyle hustling
0: <laughs>
1: i mean none of this we might not even be talking right now if that had been the title so how did the that title the, come into play uh ended up Actually, you know what? It was lifestyle hustling in the proposal. Then it was drug dealing for fun and profit, which was the name, which was the <laughs> tongue in cheek, the tongue in cheek name of my class. That's what I called the seminar because of the sports supplements. And uh, I think it was Walmart or Costco. Someone did not like the title. The drug, the drug, right. Right. So one of my customers, before the book could get to my readers, did not like the title. So in retrospect, thank God for that. They didn't like the title. And uh, Crown had a bunch of ideas, but I don't like making, when possible, uh, purely emotional decisions based on some type of consensus. Right? I mean, as they say, uh, or I've heard at least, you know, a camel is a horse drawn by consensus. <laughs> and I instead said, all right, if we need a new title, give me some time. I'll test it. And at the time, it was the the, the, the golden years of Google AdWords, which could be tested very inexpensively. And I grabbed about 10 different domain names, right, URLs, and then I had combinations of different titles and subtitles. And so I put those, I bid on different search terms like retirement, round the world travel, whatever it might be. And then an ad would pop up for my book that didn't exist. And it would have whatever, lifestyle hustling as the ad headline, and then the Add text would be the subtitle and then the link, which would be the URL for that particular book title, which I'd already reserved. And Google mix and matches those automatically. So you don't have to manually test all the permutations and combinations. And for two or $300, whatever it was, maybe less, $150 to $300 within a week, I knew that by far what got the highest click-through rate, so it's the same as people picking up a cover, and me tracking the pickup rate, the highest click-through rate was four-hour work week. You know, escape the nine-to-five, so on and so forth. Uh, live anywhere and join the new rich, which ended up being the title and subtitle had by far the highest click-through rate differential and standard deviation. And I took that data to the publisher, and that's what we ran with. Oh man.
0: Number one, I got to start watching infomercials. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, I'm going to have to run off to interview Kobe Bryant. Right. Yeah, I'd say I'd say it's important. So what I'm I would like to, if it's okay with you, yeah, stop here. Let's make this Tim Ferriss the early years. Yeah, chapter and, w- chapter one. Chapter one, and then come back and do chapter two, starting with the phenomenal success of that
1: book may I give people a preview of where we are now? So much like, say, a movie, we can be in, med- do it, in, do med- it. in media rest, and then we can flash back. Teach me, Tim, so teach me. So we, we, you know, we'll, we'll do Star Wars episode four, and then we can do the, pre- <laughs> then we can do the prequels. Uh, well, the I, th- I think what has helped me to do To achieve any modicum of success in these various areas, and I've certainly had plenty of mistakes, like the audio (laughs) books and so on, is asking better questions. So first and foremost, I'd like to thank you for helping me to learn how to ask better questions. So that's piece number one. Uh, Thank you. Piece number two is that in many ways, by reading writing by people such as yourself, I started interviewing people myself, which I was doing for the books, and uh, so, the Four Hour Work Week was the first book. The latest book uh, is Tribe of Mentors. right? So, if you look back at these people, I had the the absolute spectacular luck to meet. Whether it's John McPhee or Ed Schau. oh, I can't wait to read this uh, book. I, I am always asked, "What do you? What can I do if I don't have access to those people?" So, what I did was went out and found 130 of. People who are the best at what they do, and ask them the 11 or so questions that I've refined over several hundred interviews to figure out what their secrets are. And whether that relates to financial success, investing, physical wellness, training, or otherwise, it's a compilation of profiles of people ranging from, you know, the Maria Sharapovas and uh, Kel- uh, Kelly Slaters of the world, world class athletes of all different types. To heroes of mine I wanted to reach out to like Dan Gable, who is a wrestling coach at exactly. Iowa. Exactly. Right? So the McPhee equivalent in the right. world of wrestling I got it. is Gable. So I interviewed Gable and so on, all the way to different types of writers, people like Stephen Pinker and so on. It sounds amazing. Teasing out all of their playbooks. Uh, so for people interested in uh, that type of cheat sheet across every possible domain you can imagine, uh, tribe of mentors is, is the latest, which should be out by the time people hear this. So they can, they can find that at tribe of and see sample chapters and the list of all the mentors and everything. That was a beautiful infomercial, Tim. Thank you. <laughs> but wait, there's more <laughs> order in the next 15 minutes and we'll slash the price from 29 95 to 19. <laughs>
0: We're going to see you next time, Tim. Part two. (laughs) Part two. We're going to pick it up from there.
1: All right. Thank you, Cal. Thank you, man. Always a pleasure. That's
0: great. All right. We got to cut it there. I got to go off and interview Kobe Bryant. And Tim's got to interview Brian Grazer. So it's clear. We need part two. That'll be coming soon. Now... I don't know much about all this technology stuff, but Kevin the manager is telling me you have to subscribe to hear part two and all the future episodes. He says, go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Google Play. And once you're there, figure it out because I have no idea how to do it myself. So I can't tell you. That's why I got Kevin the manager. See you next time. You know, everybody's different. We all have different dreams, different passions, different businesses. Why should we all be bound to the same repetitive websites? With Squarespace, you can customize your website. World-class designers help you make it beautiful and your own at the same time. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. Use the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And stand out with Squarespace. psst. psst. You need to hire somebody? I know your pain. I can help. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 top job boards with just one click. Then, their smart technology notifies the most qualified candidates to apply. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And right now, anyone who hears this can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Busman F-U-S-S-M-A-N. ZipRecruiter. It's the smartest way to hire.